Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, we're bringing in a best of this week. This interview with Casey Davis, she really reset things for both of us in a very important way. She says in this episode that where we find relaxation is not the same places that some people actually find relaxation and joy from keeping their house neat and perfect and tidy, and some do not. And so that she's uninterested in messy is better than neat, neat is better than messy, that the better than is the part that has to go away. Love that idea. Agree. My word of the year, which you know is morally neutral. Oh, yes. I come up with a phrase of the year every year. It's something that Casey talks a lot about, and I keep saying it now, and I'm surely becoming annoying to my friends and relations. The freedom of the idea that certain things are morally neutral. You layer on judgments about things in a way that is detrimental to yourself. So that making your bed is good and productive and shame-free and not making your bed is lazy and bad and terrible. Taking the shame and moral judgment out of what she refers to as care tasks. I am a person who gets exactly zero joy from cleaning, but there's a tremendous amount of shame in the fact that my house is not always neat and tidy. And as we step over blankets and detritus throughout my house, I'm like, I am wounding myself and my children for life because a real mom would always have a clean house. Or worse than that, that the blankets and the detritus and the unmade bed are there to judge you. That dirty dish is looking at you like, boy, oh boy. (laughs) Another bad day for you, Margaret. Another day as a loser. It turns out that that's not the case. No, the the judgment is only coming from me. The plate is like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. The dirty plate is only reflecting my own judgment on myself, Amy. Since we aired this episode, Casey has started her own podcast called Struggle Care that we've also talked about on the show. Subscribe to that if you don't. She's amazing. But this episode, I think, is particularly amazing because we explore our own relationships to mess and tidiness and struggle and care tasks with her. And it's one of those episodes where you and I have very different starting points. You are a neat, orderly person in general, I would say. And I am much more of a messy, chaotic person. We do come at it from such different points of view. And both of us had a lot to take away from it even though our approach to housekeeping is, to say the least, not the same. (laughs) Enjoy this Fresh Take with Casey Davis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the face of motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to KC Davis. She's the creator of the mental health platform Struggle Care, where she shares a revolutionary approach to self and home care for those dealing with mental health, physical illness, and hard seasons of life. KC began her mental health journey at 16 when she entered treatment for drug addiction and mental health issues. She has since become a licensed professional therapist, an author, a speaker, an advocate for mental health and recovery. Casey's TikTok account, Domestic Blisters, you've probably seen that because it has over a million followers. And her brand new book is How to Keep House While Drowning, A Gentle Approach to Cleaning and Organizing. Welcome, Casey. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. 
Thanks so much for coming on. I loved this book. This is like, I had the highlighter out. And in the intro, we talk about it being gentle for people in seasons and struggle, but it's also gentle for people like me who are just really struggle in this area of your life every day, which is just... I am a messy person and my house is often a mess and I feel a lot of shame around that. And I really enjoyed your viewpoint. You talk about housekeeping as care tasks. So can you bring us in by talking about the distinction between those two things? Yeah. So when I started making content and writing in this space, the intersection of mental health and housekeeping, for lack of a better term right now, one of the first things that I did was start to change the language that I was using around those terms. So instead of saying things like chores or housekeeping, I began to refer to them as care tasks. And that kind of helps us recenter like what we're doing. Because for so many women, especially those of us who were socialized as women and present as women, we really tend to internalize our worthiness with how we're able to keep house, particularly as mothers. Yes. And so housekeeping becomes this kind of performative action where it's the measure by which we're doing good enough. And that creates this coin and tends to put people on one side or the other. And that's why I say it's like two sides of the same coin. Either we end up sort of exhausting ourselves, trying to keep everything perfect And we're sort of run by this shame that we know we'll feel if we let things get quote unquote out of hand. Yes. And so we never stop. We never rest. We have anxiety. We're kind of irritable and biting at people. And we're constantly sort of at odds with the people in our family because they're messing up the space, right? And we're trying to keep the space looking like a magazine cover because somewhere we got the message that is integral to whether we're fulfilling our role in our family. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. You said we internalize it, but we also externalize it, right? Like I go to other people's house and I'm like, look at this perfect person. They must be a better person than me on some fundamental level. And then the other side of that coin is that same message, that same internalizing, externalizing, except on that side is someone who looks at the enormity of the tasks and just get so overwhelmed that they don't even want to start. And so I call this sort of the under-functioning, over-functioning. Yes. Which is, okay, my house isn't working for me and I'm so overwhelmed by what it would take to get it under control that I just have sort of thrown up my hands. This is someone who maybe is struggling with mental health issues or ADHD or you know they just feel like everything is so just overwhelming. Yes. That they just go, you know, I don't even want to start. It's not possible. This was a real aha moment for me, Casey, reading this book, because I mean, I think we all struggle with mess and the sort of unendingness of it all. But I probably find it easier to keep my home neat. And I look at my mother-in-law whose house is always spotless, but she finds relaxation and joy in keeping a perfect house. You know, she hums while she wipes her counters. She finds relaxation in that. And you talk in the book about you have a friend whose house is always perfect, but she can't get her act together for her business. And and you've got all the time in the world for your business, but your kitchen's a mess. And that it's not better or worse. It's where we find relaxation is not necessarily the same places. Yeah. And I say a lot in, you know, I think I mentioned it in my book, but I say a lot, especially in my social channels, that sometimes there's so much pressure to be perfect and have everything look a certain way that there sort of arises this backlash content where we say, actually, messy is good. Actually, this is real life. Actually, people who clean their houses all the time and have perfect houses, they ignore their children. And I like to sort of avoid that pitfall because the truth is, is that there are people that can keep a very neat and tidy home and that brings them peace and joy. And they're able to do that while being engaged with their family, while being present for those fun moments. Like in the book, I talk about my friend says, you know, I just kind of float around. (laughs) Yeah. I just kind of float around my house, you know, engaging my family, picking up a little here, making a meal, doing a little laundry. And, you know, that works for them. And then there are people that are messy to the hill that would also say, I'm happy. Right. I'm happy. My house functions. I'm here present with my family. We'll deal with the paint on the walls later. And you could say the same thing and just sort of 
cock it to the other side and go, there are also people keeping a museum worthy house that can only do so out of anxiety right? Mm. that are not present with their families that are, do have families begging them just sit down and watch a movie with us, but they can't stay still. And there are people whose homes are messy and unfunctioning that are in a lot of distress. Right. And so I always say like, this isn't about whether having a messy house or a clean house is superior. That's antithetical to my whole message. My point is it's morally neutral. It doesn't have this generalized connection to whether you're quote unquote doing good or doing bad. It might be the case for certain individual people. But the reality is, I don't care whether your home is clean or messy. I care if you're in pain. I care if you're in distress. Mm. I recently, that really stuck out to me in the book. And I recently heard this phrase morally neutral in another context. And it has been one of the most useful phrases that has been introduced to my adult life. I have some OCD tendencies. I, I like to touch things and keep things in order in my mind by counting, you know, bites and fours and, you know, some OCD behavior. And I was speaking to a mental health professional about this. And she said, because I was like, it's crazy, the stuff I do, it's really nutty and it's crazy. And it's, and I was bringing all my like shame about it to her. And she said to me, everything you're doing is completely morally neutral. If it helps you to count bites and tens or to touch the doorway as you leave to help you feel safe, that's a morally neutral activity. And when I read it in the book, I realized like I bring a lot of that same thing to housekeeping that like, I'm good when my house is ordered and neat and everyone comes over and oohs and ahs about how clean it is. But I'm bad when it's a mess and someone stops by and they see eight coats on the floor. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by morally neutral? So what I mean by morally neutral is that a thing is not good, bad, right or wrong in and of itself. That your participation in it doesn't make you morally superior your struggle with it does not make you morally inferior. So if we take cleaning, for example, someone who finds cleaning very easy, someone who is often motivated to clean, someone who has the time and energy and the bodily ability to clean in such a way that keeps all of their house clean, that person is not of better character than someone who either doesn't like to clean or struggles to clean or doesn't have the bodily or mental capacity to clean. And I think when we recognize that, it allows us to step back and say, who am I really doing this for? Mm. Am I doing this because I feel shame when it's not done and I feel like I'm worthy when it is done? Or am I seeing these as care tasks, just as things to do to care for me? And the big slogan of my platform is that you don't exist to serve your space. Your space exists to serve you. Right. What does that mean? That's the paradigm shift we're trying to make. Because if I'm running around and I see my home as needing to be governed by these rules, right? Laundry has to be done a certain way. Dishes should be done a certain way. The house should always look a certain way. And I'm basically just this little ping pong ball like it, or like the pinball machines. And I'm just constantly running around because care tasks aren't done in this binary. They're done or they're not done. They're cycles. Yeah. So we have to kind of constantly be turning these cycles. I always use dishes, for example, like dishes aren't done or not done. Dishes actually have five different stages in the life cycle of a dish. A dish is in your cabinet ready to be used. A dish is out and being used or has just been used. A dish is maybe by the sink waiting to be cleaned. A dish is being cleaned and a dish is waiting to be put away. And all of the, he's allowed to be in any of those stages. There's not a stage that a dish <laughs> exists in that means that you're doing well. Right. <laughs> it sounds funny. Yeah. When they exist in that stage, you're not. <laughs> Right. But we really actually do this in our mind. Like, it sounds ridiculous, but it's so true that we're like, the dish on the table is a bad dish from a bad person. Like, it, yes, it, we're anthropomorphizing a dish. Yes. Dishes don't judge. <laughs> and the point of, you know, your space is to care for you. So instead of looking at that as I'm not allowed to leave any dishes out and the only acceptable places for a dish to be is maybe in the dishwasher or in the cabinet. If you see all of those phases just as morally neutral, then my job becomes to sort of turn the wheel in such a way 
that number one produces clean dishes Mm -hmm. Ah. and number two allows me to enjoy my life. That's those are the two goals, right? And so when those are the only two goals, then I can kind of go, well, okay, so if I'm experiencing some barriers to turning that cycle in the quote unquote normal way, in what ways can I get creative or out of the box to create a dish system that works for me? Mm. And I did this in really small steps for me. So the first thing I said was, you know, I have a tendency to leave dishes everywhere. Like there are literally two cups on this <laughs> counter from We see them right now, people. <laughs> you can't yeah. see Casey, but she's holding up two, I believe, dirty dishes. Oh yeah, they're dirty. One of them has a smoothie in it. So that's gonna start smelling really good. Yes. Soon. It's um, gonna calcify too. But the first thing that I was like, okay, when I'm done with a dish, do my best to just bring it to the sink. That's it. That's the mm-hmm. only thing I'm asking of myself. And that actually increased my level of functioning because things weren't getting left out as much. And after I did that for a while and it became automatic, I thought, well, but here's what's frustrating is that I'm finding that whenever I get a lot of dishes in my sink, I don't have access to my sink and it makes it harder to clean things. It makes it harder to cook. And so then I started stacking them up on the side. And then after a while, I was walking through an Ikea and I saw this dish rack and I have a dishwasher, so I've never used a dish rack. And I saw and I just had this sort of idea of, you know, one of the things that's always really helped me when I felt overwhelmed by dishes was like organizing my dirty dishes before I started to clean them. And I realized that if I were to get this dish rack and I were to sort of instruct my whole family, like, hey, when you're done with a dish, you don't have to clean it. You don't have to put it in the dishwasher. You don't have to do any of this. Just come and put it on the rack. Mm. And so as we go throughout the day, we put our dirty dishes on this rack. And so what happens is at the end of the day, they're organized Mm. Because I realized that my barrier to dishes was feeling overwhelmed at all of them down in the sink. And if I organized them, I didn't feel overwhelmed. And so now at the end of the day, I'm not really procrastinating as much putting those dishes up because, well, there they are. They're laid out. It doesn't look like it's so much anymore. And I actually bought a second silverware caddy. Mm. Like I looked up the brand of my dishwasher and I got a silverware caddy because the other barrier for me is I hate to unload the dishwasher. I procrastinate it. But then, of course, that's the stopgap, right. that's the bottleneck that pr- gets everything all up. And so I put this second caddy on the side of the dish because I also realized that when it came to do the dishes, what I was hating was sticking my hands into that gross <laughs> water and having to fish out the silverware. Oh, yes. So now when we're done with dishes, we put the dirty dish in the rack and we put the silverware straight into the extra caddy so that when it comes time at night to do what I call my closing duties, I unload the dishwasher and then I can literally just switch the caddies out. Wow. And then I'm not overwhelmed by the organized dirty dishes to stick them straight into the washer. And this is something that I never would have come up with had I believed that my job was to work for my space because dishes have rules. You don't put dirty dishes on a rack. You know, dirty dishes are wrong. Look at what a mess this is. When I realized that the only purpose of dishes is to serve me and my family and create clean dishes for us, then I could kind of go, you know, my barrier is I don't like to unload the dishwasher. I feel overwhelmed with a lot of dishes in the sink and I don't like to get my hands gross to go for the silverware. And instead of judging those barriers, like I'm not allowed to have those or I shouldn't have them or I should just push past it. I should just figure it out. What if I just took a step back and went, okay, that's the barrier. What if I just pretended that was a legitimate barrier? What if that was as legitimate as I broken my arm? Mm. Mm. Is there a way I can create a ritual or a routine that just circumvents that hard stuck part for me? Mm. Sometimes there's not, and I have to find ways to sort of push through. But as human beings, we have a limited amount of push through. Like I've got like 10 push through points a day, right? And there are more important things that I'm going to have to just like grit my teeth and push through. So anything that I can eliminate needing to use those points on is going to increase my functioning, my satisfaction of my life. And in our house, remaining a calm and respectful parent is I need to save the majority of my push through points for that because I'm trying to do the work. I go to therapy, I do these things, but the reality is sometimes I just have to bite my tongue and walk away in order to not scream or be mean as a parent. I want to put a fine point on that. We are talking to Casey Davis, the author of How to Keep House While Drowning, and we're going to be right back. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew 
And believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro aunt at this (laughs) point. Our family has seen a lot of babies. And as soon as they start standing or walking, I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360 degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Margaret, when you've got kids, as just about everybody listening to this right now does, you're probably looking at what they eat and seriously wondering how they could possibly be getting all of the vitamins and minerals they need to grow big and strong. That's why Haya was created, the pediatrician-approved, super-powered, chewable vitamin for kids. Haya fills the most common gaps in modern children's diets to provide the full-body nourishment our kids need, and yes, Even your picky eaters will approve. I know mine does. Formulated with the help of nutritional experts, Haya is pressed with a blend of 12 organic fruits and vegetables. Then it's supercharged with 15 essential vitamins and minerals to help support our kids' growing brains and bodies. And Haya vitamins are sent straight to your door, which means you set it and forget it and give yourself one less thing to worry about. We've worked out a special deal with Haya for their best-selling children's vitamin. Receive 50% off your first order. To claim this deal, you must go to HayaHealth.com slash fresh. This deal is not available on their regular website. Go to H-I-Y-A-H-E-A-L-T-H, HayaHealth.com slash fresh to get your kids the full body nourishment they need to grow into healthy adults. Our dishwasher broke recently. And so we've been having like, a, we've basically fallen into complete chaos. We're basically like the sun has gone out. Like we do not know how to function without a dishwasher. And this idea of like the dishes are piling up and therefore it's the story just starts to percolate in your mind of like, we can't function. Everything's out of control. We have lost control. And it's just like, what if you were able to break it down? And one of the things we finally did was move to compostable plates because we're just like, oh, we can actually solve this another way without dishes becoming completely overwhelming. Another thing that I love that you talk about in the book is being kind to your future self, because it's not when I picked up the book, I thought it was going to be like, let it go. It's fine. Don't worry so much about it. And it's really not. It's like, here's a practical way to get some of this done. So talk to us a little bit about being kind to your future self. So I always thought about doing things around my house, almost as like punishment for having lived there. <laughs> like, correct. That is so well said. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, that was nice that my kids and I got all the paints out and painted butterflies to decorate for spring. Or that was really nice that I let them play in the sand. Or that was really nice that we had this big, nice dinner. But now I have to pick up after. It's time to pay. Right. Yeah. And so everything was picking up after ourselves, cleaning up after ourselves. And it was like the reward and the payout already happened. And it's so much harder to then sort of rally to client because everything is after. And it also put me in this reactive state of, you know, something happens and now I have to do this or we have to do this. So that was part of it. And then the other part of it was, you know, there were times where I'd be sitting there and I'd be staring at the dishes in the sink and I'd think, I'm going to hate myself tomorrow if I don't do that. Yeah. Shame is motivator. And it was just this like, I feel shame at looking at those dishes. And so I'm going to let that shame just sort of like berate me until I move into action. And I had this moment for a long time. My husband would wake up really early on Sunday mornings. And this is what I talk about in the book and wake up with our kids so that I could sleep in. And even though I would struggle most of the nights to get care tasks done, for some reason, when it came to Saturday night... I always found myself being like, well, you know what? 
I don't like doing dishes, but I know how frustrating it is to wake up with the kids and not be able to find like the cups for their milk and like having to like go under the, you know, couch and get like the curdled one. And then you're like furiously hand washing in the hottest water you can find while they cry. And so I would think I don't want them to go through that. So I'll make sure that I at least load up the milk cups into the dishwasher and I'll make sure that he has enough, you know, counter space to make breakfast. And I realized that I was doing these things out of a motivation of kindness towards him because I love him and I appreciate everything he does. And because I want to relieve some stress from him. And it just kind of hit me one night as I was doing this. Why is it that my attitude towards my husband setting up this the um, area for success for him was from a place of kindness? But when it came to setting up the area for success for myself, it was from a place of shame and obligation and, you know, almost berating myself for having lived there. And what's funny is that I find the motivation of kindness so much more motivating And so I started realizing, you know, what if I were to think that way about myself? Doing a few things in the evening to sort of shut down the kitchen as a way of being kind to morning me. And I called them closing duties because I used to work in a restaurant. I was going to say that's waitress terminology right there. It is. And everyone who's worked in a restaurant has had the experience of coming in in the morning, ready to go, and things aren't set up for you. And you're like, (laughs) last night. And so I found myself, it's like the same thing. Like I would wake up in the morning, I'd look around, I'd be like, who closed last night? And then I'd be like, oh, I did. (laughs) It was me. And so this idea of what if I were to think of doing things in the evening as a kindness to morning me, because I'm the opener and I deserve to be set up for success. I deserve to function in my own space. And so I started calling them closing duties because that almost took the morality out of it because I would think about, well, I never had trouble doing my closing duties at work. Right. You could want to do them or not want to do them. They just, you had to do them before you could go home. And you just did them. But why is it that it's so much harder for me to do things like that at home? And so I started sort of unpacking that. And part of it was the terminology. It was the closing duties feels morally neutral. Cleaning your kitchen feels like an obligation and a duty. And if you don't do it, you're bad. And then the second part was that closing duties was finite. There's only, you know, a list of five things that you had to do and then you were done. Whereas cleaning my kitchen or picking up the playroom or cleaning my house felt infinite. Like you could clean for six hours and probably could still find more things to clean in your kitchen. 16 hours. Yes, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) And then the third part was this idea that you end up sort of doing them quickly because you want to go home afterwards. Mm -hmm. You clock out afterwards. And so I started doing this. I started thinking, okay, what are the things that I absolutely need first thing in the morning to function? Because I actually don't need the crumbs vacuumed up from the stove to function first thing in the morning. I just really need like a clean trash can, like a clear, like a new bag. I need enough dishes to do breakfast. I need enough counter space to safely prepare food and I need to be mentally stable. So I need to take my medication. And then I I just made this list of like five things. If I did these four or five things in the evening, I'd be set up for success here. And I started doing them. My husband would put our kid to bed, our kids to bed at like 7, 7.30. And while he was doing that, I would start doing these closing duties. And it only took me about 25 to 30 minutes. Mm. And I'm finishing at 7.30 and I'm clocking out. Mm. So it doesn't matter if the playroom's a mess, if the laundry's not done, if this is that and the other. When I finish my closing duties, I clock out as a mom. I don't get more things. I don't clean more things. I don't do more things. I use the rest of the evening to rest, to recreate, to have fun with my husband, to watch TV, to do something that I like to do. And so it was this like all in one whammy where I was reclaiming some adult time and some adult identity. I was having this time to be who I was as a person outside of my role as caretaker in my family. I was being kind to my future self and setting myself up for success. I was allowing myself to have less stress in the morning. And it start, all of this started with one task. Like I didn't jump right to five things. It started with one task, which was to unload and reload my dishwasher at seven o'clock every evening. Mm. And even if I ate afterwards, like I would frequently do my closing duties and then make dinner for me and my husband. And then dinner dishes would wait wow. until the next night at seven o'clock. I was that like... I wasn't rigid like I had to be, but it was like that. I felt like, no, I actually do get to clock out at 730. And if you eat a bowl of cereal at 735, it goes on the dirty dish rack and it waits until tomorrow. 
And I think that's it's so mentally important. We, I was just doing an episode about kids bedtimes. And I said, for me, I don't really care when your kid goes to bed. But I knew that if I didn't know when my kid was going to bed, the night could go to 11 o'clock. Like I need to know my clock out time. I think that's right. And I love that idea of closing duties because it is it's your clock out time. Can you tell us a little bit about the five things tidying method? I love this because I wrote it on a post-it and I put it on my wall. I mean, this is a game changer, folks. Listen up. Yeah, it's a game changer. So this is how I, I tidy any space because I get overwhelmed very easily. And I first want to explain like why that's overwhelming for me because I think a lot of people can relate and it helps sort of elucidate how powerful the five things are. So when I look at a space that's really, really messy, really, really cluttered, and I think, oh my God, there are a thousand things here. So I have ADHD. I had some postpartum depression. And both of those things really affect what we refer to as executive functioning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's the part of your brain that's responsible for time management, working memory, prioritization, task initiation, sequencing and ordering tasks. And there are lots of other things that can do that too, including sleep deprivation and stress. Mm. So chances are almost everybody listening has at least having periods (laughs) of their time when their executive functioning is sort of struggling. Not so good. And so I would look at this, oh my gosh, there's a million things. And I'd be like, I'd make my do it. And it would feel like that it was all of a sudden I become a thousand pounds heavier. And I go and I make myself pick up a thing and I pick up the thing. So first I had to make a decision to pick something up. What do I pick up first? I don't know. Just be okay. I've now made a decision. Now I'm holding this thing and I have to look at it and I have to decide what this thing is. So, you know, information has to travel through my eyes into my brain and go, oh, this is a book. Then I have to go, where does this book go? And if this book has a place to go, I then have to walk to that place which might be out of the room to put that place up. And then I might see something on the way that also needs to be done and get distracted. And then I have to decide, oh, am I going to keep going? Am I going to do that thing? What should I do? I've already made about 15 decisions and I'm in like major decision fatigue, right? So, and God help us if it doesn't have a place, because then I'm going to stare at it and go, where do I put this? And I'm going to go, well, maybe I could put it in this closet. And I open the closet and it's a mess. And I go, well, maybe I should reorganize the closet first. Well, in order to do that, I really should decide which of these coats fit and which don't. So I start trying on coats, right? So (laughs) I'm not moving very fast. I'm not seeing a lot of progress. So I want to quit the whole time. I don't feel like I have a roadmap. I'm having major decision fatigue. So here's what I started doing that really, really helps this. When I see the thousand things, I tell myself, there are not a thousand things in here. There are only five things in any room. There are trash, dishes, laundry, things that have a place that are not in the place, and things that don't have a place. And I start category by category in whatever room I'm in, and I don't leave that room. So before I even go into the room, I go get a trash bag and a laundry basket and maybe an extra basket, right? And I get my trash bag and I walk around and I just look for trash, and it, it almost makes me feel like those video games, like where you're a drone and it's like, Terminator. Yeah. Yes. And it's like locking in. So I'm automating this process. There are really no decisions being made, except is this trash? Is this trash? Is this trash? And I'm throwing things away in the bag that I'm holding. So I'm not even walking back and forth to the trash can. So I'm going trash, 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 trash. And While I'm doing that, I fill up the trash bag and then I just set it down in the room and then I get my dishes and I started picking up my dishes and putting them in the sink. You could even put them into a bus tub or something like that if you're in a different room. And then, and I don't do the dishes, I just get them down. And then I get my laundry basket and I put all of the laundry and maybe shoes too into that laundry basket and I put that down. And now I kind of even take it smaller. So then maybe I'll walk up to my desk And once you've removed trash dishes and laundry, the only things left on that desk are items that need to be put away. And some of those items have a place. And so I start there picking up anything that has a place and just putting it back immediately because there's no thinking involved there. And then I end up with a pile of things that don't have a place. And I just leave that pile there and move on to the next space. Okay, here's this bookcase. Here's this one corner of the room. In the end, what I've done is in a very, very quick manner, made the space very livable I've given myself multiple little finish lines that feel good and rewarding and productive to cross. And I'm left with this pile of things that need a place. This is the real things that I have to think about that are frustrating, that get me easily distracted. And some days I just choose to put those things in a basket and set it to the side and be done and go on with my life. 
And some things I go, okay, let's put on a Netflix show and sit down and really start to figure out what can this, can I get rid of? What can I sort of purge? What can I find a permanent space for? And so this is the way that I go about tidying up and it, it's really shortened the time. The other thing I love about it is that I've heard so many people that struggle with care tasks talk about that struggle originating in childhood when their parents would yell at them about a messy room and, you know, close the door and go clean this up or else. And they're sitting in their room and they're looking around and they don't know what to do. I mean, we assume that tidying up is so intuitive, but here's a child looking around and they're overwhelmed and they don't know how to start and nobody has showed them. So they don't know how. And I'll never forget the time that my daughter took all of the diapers out of her diaper bin and they were spread all around. And I got really frustrated. And I said, put the diapers back. And she said, I can't. And I was like, yes, you hurt. Right. So we get into this argument because she's saying, I can't, I can't. And she even starts crying. And I'm thinking like, yes, you physically can pick these diapers up and put them away. And we go back and forth until she finally bursts into tears and says, but there's too many. I can't hold them all. And I realized that what she thought I was saying was pick them all up at once and put them into this bin. Like kids are so literal and kids don't have the same kind of flexible thinking and problem solving. So that because that seemed like the only way to do it, and she didn't feel like she could do that, she felt like she couldn't do it at all, which is funny because that's honestly what we do, right? Right. And so I realized she's not unwilling. She's just overwhelmed. Mm. Mm. And, and we are too. <laughs> yes. And I said, baby, you don't have to pick them all up at once. Pick up one, pick up one diaper. And so I broke it down to these tiny steps. I said, pick up one diaper. And she picked up one diaper. And I said, put it in the bin. And she put it in the bin. I said, now pick up one more diaper. I literally had to walk her through it like that. She went, oh, like in that little two-year-old voice, right? And put them all in. I actually, actually, she might have been three at the time. And so a lot of people actually have these childhood experiences. And one of the great gifts of the five things tidying method is that my children understand it. Mm -hmm. So the other day I began picking up and my daughter says, you know, can I help? Which if we're all being honest with ourselves... When they're very, very small, their help is not actually help. And there's something about that phrase that just like sets off alarm bells because number one, we feel like we have to say yes. Like it'd just be like such a bad mom move to be like, no. But number two, we know that we're just like, oh, okay. You just like doubled your workload because you have to like do what you were doing and like teach someone how to do it, include them how to do it. And like probably they're going to make it take longer. When we come back, we're going to talk about including kids in the five things method. We're talking to Casey Davis. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. Okay, we're back. And Casey, one of the positives of the um, five things method, as we were talking about before the break, is that this is a way you can introduce kids to helping clean. Talk a little bit about that for us. So it's a lot easier for children to understand like one step at a time. Mm -hmm. And and first of all, I want to say it's totally valid to sometimes say no to kids when they ask if they can help. Mm. 
Like we're really not like morally obligated to say yes every single time. As important as it is for me to include my child and my children into care tasks and show them how it's done, it's equally as important that I be modeling what boundaries look like huh. and what showing up authentically looks like. Because how many of us would say, oh, we're pretty good at serving others, but we're not really good at saying no. Right. So I actually want my daughter to see me go, actually, I'm too frustrated to do this genuinely right now. Actually, I'm a little bit in a headspace where mommy just needs to feel productive. So I love you, but no, I would prefer you go play while I do this. And having that good balance. That's right. Because we hear from people all the time like, oh, well, have your kids clean up and have them do it. I think that's a really interesting pushback that it doesn't always have to be. But I'm going to take the other side of that. Like we had Michaeline Duclef on the show and she makes the argument, which I think is valid, that a two-year-old really wants to help and participate and an eight-year-old doesn't. And it's a pain in the tush to have the two-year-old help. But if you want an eight-year-old who knows how to help, then you have a two-year-old, you get them involved while they can. But it's also, I would agree, totally valid that, like, that it is often much easier to do it without them. But here's why I'm so excited, because that is true. But here's the counterintuitive place to make that true. In order for me to say yes with enthusiasm, I have to say no with confidence. Mm, Okay. So if I feel obligated to say yes every single time my kid wants to help, I'm going to be doing that from this sort of lackluster, okay, and then I'm going to get impatient and then I'm going to be frustrated. And so for me, what I have found is that I have to model both an enthusiastic yes and a confident no. Mm. And that if I'm finding myself not able to say the enthusiastic yes, What that tells me isn't that I need to try harder to be the nice mommy. It's actually a check-in for me that maybe I'm not saying no enough. Mm. I'm not taking care of myself enough. And so I need to be able to be saying no with confidence because they can pick up on that anxiety when you're like, "Uh, I just, I'm sorry, honey. Sometimes I do. Instead of going, you know what, sweetheart? No, thank you today. So that tomorrow when you ask, because first of all, you don't want to pick up on that anxiety because they want to know it's perfectly okay to ask. Mm Mm-hmm. So tomorrow when she asks, I can go, absolutely. Yeah, let's do it together. Right. Because tomorrow you have the bandwidth to do the lesson on the diapers. It's not every time. But what happens then when you have an eight or 10 year old who is no longer, can I please help you clean the kitchen? When they stop asking and you want buy in, how does this five things method sort of, is there a family expectation that everybody participates? At an age appropriate level, I think. Yeah. So what does that look like? So I think for the reason with the five things tidying method, because even at the age of eight, you know, you still don't have the brain formulation to sort of figure out this process by yourself. So, but Mm -hmm. I can tell a child, we're going to pick up all the trash. Everyone go find the trash, right? Or you can put on a song and say, for this song, we're finding the trash. You can go, we're all going to race and whoever gets, you know, the right, the biggest amount of trash items. And, you know, okay, now we're going to do, so walking them through that process, category by category by category, children can grasp that. Children can get into that. Don't feel overwhelmed. And the other part is that my child wants to do things with me. And if I capitalize on that at this age, then she will begin to associate doing things with mom as having that quality time with mom, which is why it's so important to me that I preserve that as a time when I can be patient and engaged. And I don't actually, I don't play a lot. I'm not a mom that plays pretend. I don't really play with toys. I dislike it. I'm not good at it. And I find that I interrupt what would naturally be unfolding in their play. And so I'm not a mom that plays pretend. I will sit with you. I will watch. I will ask questions about your play. And instead, I try to funnel those really important, connective, playful moments into the care tasks that we're doing about our day. So as we are making dinner together, as we are sitting and eating together, as I'm cleaning and we're talking and we're so that my kid isn't having this experience of playtime is fun. But when mom makes us clean up, that's the real drag. Mm. Because that, I think, can make this impression of you are an 8, a 10, an 11-year-old, and you have that aspect of fun is fun, and then we clean up after ourselves. Mm. As opposed to trying, and I don't do this perfectly by any means, but this is sort of my value, is that playing is fun, and cleaning may not be as fun, but it's not this like burdensome, this is when mom gets angry and starts throwing things. Because <laughs> I don't want to imprint this anxiety around cleaning with my kids. And I also want to say that, you know, for the first 
probably three years of my youngest lives, I didn't ask my kids to do anything. And there were times when I would feel this shame because people would say like, well, you should be teaching your kids to clean up after you. But the reality is, is like when it was a pandemic, I had just had a baby. I was overwhelmed. I had undiagnosed ADHD and postpartum depression. And it was already a lot to try and just keep our home functioning without mm-hmm. the added burden of, and I'm a you know crappy mom because I'm not teaching them how to do this. And realizing that just because I'm not teaching them right now doesn't mean I'm never going to teach them in their whole life, right? Yep. Just because in this postpartum period or even in this year, I'm not teaching them doesn't mean I can't teach them next year when I'm in a different place. And one thing I want to underline, because it made so much sense to me in a kind of, I can't believe I haven't thought of this before way, is that my kids are now 13, 12, and 10. And I often say, you guys clean the living room. I'm going in to work on the dishes. And then I come back out and it's still messy and they're sitting back around. I'm like, I told you to clean in here. But if I went in, if I broke it down to five steps where I went in and I said, Okay, while I'm doing the dishes, I want you to pick up every piece of trash. Then I can come in and say, "Uh oh, I see two pieces of trash that aren't done. Okay, let's do that. Then I come back and I say, okay, anything that's laundry, there's a basket in the corner that breaking it down. It's not that it makes it because I'm wary about being like, because it makes it fun. It doesn't make it fun. It makes it functional, though. It makes it doable. It makes it doable, which to me, that's the chasm that I'm often, even though I've had my kids helping clean up since they were little, this is a chasm we have trouble crossing. This is a great solution. And the other thing that I did, especially for my kids, because they're really young, is when we talked about that idea of play is play, and then there's cleaning up after ourselves. I don't make my kids clean up at the end of the day. I don't make them clean up a mess right after they make it. I actually, especially for really little kids, I flipped it. You can play and make a mess all day long. I actually will wait until there is a functional reason that they will be able to internalize. Hmm. Give us an example of that. So I let my kids be as messy as possible. And then my kid will trip Mm. or she'll step on a Lego or she won't be able to find something. Right. She'll be looking for the costume. She can't find it. It's in the mess. Yeah. And that's when I take the opportunity to come in and go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. There's a lot of Legos around here. Before we play this game, let's get up all of our Legos so we're not stepping on them. Mm. So I'm connecting the functionality and the care of self directly to this task. And small children don't have what we call delayed gratification. So the idea of clean up the room tonight so that tomorrow it'll be fun, they can't really put that together. So I'm really shortening that gratification of, yeah, we'll play a game in about 10 minutes, but let's pick this up because you just hurt yourself. And I want that to be their internal sense. Mm -hmm. And that may not pay off immediately. And I always say that, you know, if I raise a kid that never cleans their room in 18 years, but then when they hit 26 and realize it matters to them to have a functional environment, has the skills to do so, and an uncomplicated relationship with care tasks to be able to carry it out, I've succeeded. If I raise a kid that cleans their room every single day till the day they're 18, but then leaves and doesn't ever do it again because they don't really know how to do it from their own sense of motivation and they don't have the skills to break it down, that to me isn't success. And I'm not saying it has to be one or the other, right? but just I'm just using the extremes to sort of do that. And so putting that before... You know, allowing them to have some consequences, you know, okay, you left the cap off that marker. Oh, yeah, seems like it's dried up. And then I I create some boundaries around that. So like, outside, I got tired of telling my kids, don't take the sand out of the sandbox, because I was feeling this anxiety of I'm gonna have to buy more sand, right? right? Or I don't want it tracked in. So what I started doing was telling them, you know what, like it actually is important for their development to have like a yes space where they can do whatever they want. They're getting so creative with the sand. So I started telling them, all right, here's the deal, babe. I will refill your sandbox twice a year. I will do that for you. (laughs) Only twice a year. I'm not going to spend, you know, $30 every month to refill it. So you need to start thinking about, you know, if you want to take all that sand out of the sandbox and not return any of it and spread it all over the yard, and then you're going to have an empty sandbox. Mm. And even though they're really little and they're not going to be able to necessarily pace themselves, they're going to experience that 
result of, oh, I don't have any sand now. And I'm going to tell them it's not a punishment. It's just a matter of fact, like, yeah. Right. It's just a natural consequence of your behavior. Yeah. And little by little, that will allow them to begin to think about, well, I really want this sand because I want my kids thinking about the functionality of their space and their enjoyment and their care, not just thinking about, am I following the rules? Will I get in trouble? Will mom be mad at me? Obviously, that's a part of it because we're human. Sure. But I really want to teach them. And I have to tell you, teaching them in this way does make for a messier house right now. Mm-hmm. It does make for more whining because they don't have sand. Mm-hmm. It does make for a little more work. And that's why I say like, I'm not even telling you that this is a morally superior way to do it. Because if you're in a really tough spot and you're just in survival mode, like I was for three years, I wasn't doing any of this for three years because I just had different priorities. I had priorities of survival and kindness. And once I got a little more capacity, right now I'm in therapy, I'm on meds. I started working some, which really helps me with myself. I got better childcare. Now I have the capacity to think about some of these higher level things about how can I teach them to want to do you know, tasks. We always have to prioritize what we need to do in our seasons. And friends, this book is chock full. There are so many great tips. Casey, tell us where we can find the book and where we can find you. So I am at Domestic Blisters on TikTok. This is the channel that I post every day on. It's fantastic, guys. I love your TikToks. They're great. So good. Thank you. (laughs) I'm also on Facebook and Instagram under Struggle Care. A good sort of centralized location is my website, which is strugglecare.com. From there, you can see all the places where my book is being offered, all of the different retailers. From there, you can link to my socials. You can check out my shop where I have some different workbooks. I have a care task template there for children that my kids use where they have little icons that they kind of move it when they're done, like a little baby closing list. You can get things like decluttering lists. I even have an online course for cleaning out your depression house, which takes you step by step. So all those things are really on my website as a great sort of starting point and some free resources for care tasks. Fantastic. I can't say enough about this book, guys. I loved it. Check it out. And Casey, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks, Casey. Thank you. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. 